0: today is a new day and that means i have a new interview for uk css listeners on my last episode i featured a former professor of mine and we're going to do that again I have my former journalism professor this time, and it is Yumi Wilson who instructs at San Francisco State University as well. She's a guest lecturer at UC Berkeley, which we'll go into details later in this conversation. Now, basically what I talked to Yumi is on the subject of journalism, which she has strong expertise and knowledge about. Even when you hear her rhetorical questions, she's already getting into that mindset of a journalist. And that's why I had to have her as a guest because she's so inquisitive and you're totally going to hear that from her. Some topics we discuss are how she got involved with journalism, the difference between journalism and creative writing, as well as how journalism has evolved with technology. And stick around towards the end because she gives fantastic tips on how to pretty much update your LinkedIn profile if you're on there. So... Enjoy this interview. Well, first of all, thanks for
1: having me on your show. This is really exciting. Um, So how did I get involved in journalism? I wish I had that story where I was a paper girl and it's been in my blood all my life. My family did it, but I am not one of those people. I knew I wanted to be in television. I knew I wanted to be in news. And so when I was at Solano Community College, I was taking TV courses and I thought I'd become a broadcaster. And then I went to USC where I quickly learned how important writing was. And so some of my professors kind of directed me toward writing. The thing that kind of sealed the deal is that one year where I applied for internships and they were like, yeah, we'd love to have you. And then I'm like, well, how much do you pay? I didn't ask them that, but that was on my mind. Turns out they don't pay. A lot of broadcast internships do not pay. And given my circumstance at that time, I just couldn't afford to do that. And so I quickly moved to the print route and back then the newspapers were paying. They were paying a really decent wage to do internships. So that's kind of how my life started and really what became print journalism. And then as my career kind of changed and evolved, I became a professor, as you know. While I was a professor, I got a chance to work at LinkedIn in uh, corporate communications. And that's kind of where I realized how much the game had changed. And I really had to step up my technology game. And so that's what I did. For three years, I worked part-time and then one year full-time, really kind of understanding the bridge between social, online, print. And I guess a long way of answering your um, question is that I believe I'm a storyteller and what form that takes just depends on the medium and the moment that I'm in. And it's changed over the years.
0: So I love your answers. And we're going to talk about each point that you mentioned. And that is very smart of you for getting an internship that pays because I was one that took an internship and it was unpaid, but I just did it for the experience. And I spoke to Gina Valeria, who was a former SF state professor, we start talking about internships and how they've become like unfair to the students. Because first of all, like I said, majority don't pay students, they just want them to do free work. And then when your internship is done, then it's like, bye bye, we're going to get a new intern, and they're going to do free work.
1: Right? I really miss Gina as well. I, I worked with her on a book. And so I've worked with her on different projects. But yeah, I think the model is broken you know, that young people should be paid for whatever time they do, but Hollywood and television, all these are so exciting and, you know, people want to work there. You do get experience when you do work, even if you don't get paid, but what happens after that? Are you getting either the opportunity to stay at that company and now do you get a chance to get paid or do they just bring in someone else who's unpaid? So that unpaid labor force kind of remains static. And that's the part that is concerning to me because that's the part I don't see changing.
0: Yeah. It's concerning for students. It's concerning for the professors who actually hope for their students to move on. Uh, You know, you got a degree now in what you studied, use it. But these like corporations are like they're having that threshold. So you mentioned about writing. And I know that when I took your classes, you talked about that you wrote for San Francisco Chronicle, I looked up your LinkedIn, and I did see Modesto B and I actually live in the Central Valley. So I live close to Modesto. So I want to know how was that experience like kind of working at first in a, a smaller news outlet to something huge like the San Francisco Chronicle? And what did you learn? So
1: Modesto B was my first internship and a uh, managing editor at the time. Mark Fashey, is the one who gave me my first opportunity. And I remember him saying to The uh, college admissions person, you know, wow, I really like Yumi, but she doesn't have a lot of experience. And they kind of vouched for me. They said, look, give her an opportunity. She doesn't have a lot, but she can learn quickly. Modesto B was such a special place because every single editor who I met, the reporters I met, they all kind of took me under their wings and they were willing to mentor me. And so the difference between being mentored or being thrown into a circumstance and just having to learn on your own, it was like night and day. I grew as a writer and that small town experience, because Modesto B at that time really felt more like a small town experience. You got to know communities Th- to go from that and then to go to larger newspapers, is, which is what I did. It made a lot of sense. And that was kind of the track that you would go to a smaller news organization, then a medium size, and then a larger. And that's kind of what happened to me. I went from the Modesto B internship to the San Jose Mercury News internship the following year. And then I interned at the LA Associated Press. And then I got hired by the AP in LA. So being in that market, working in that market, made it easier for me to get hired at one of the biggest markets in the country, which is San Francisco. And that's how I ended up with the Chronicle.
0: Wow. And it's fantastic to hear that they took you under their wing and kind of nurtured you into being a professional writer. Again, I'm saying this is very uh, intellectual. You're already thinking ahead. So versus like I and many other students usually only do one internship. Damn, I should have done multiple internships. (laughs) Well, it seems like you're doing really well, though. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm only doing this as a hobby for fun. But I'm still looking for my ideal job. And it, it didn't help with this pandemic at all. There's very limited jobs now. And, and you know, now that the vaccines are happening, hopefully we get to see a little bit more job opening. So I have that blind optimism, but I'm crossing my fingers.
1: I'm with you on the optimism. I think that it's important to have, but I also believe that a lot of companies, a lot of newsrooms, a lot of startups are going to be welcoming um, employees um, back to uh, a campus-like setting, just because I feel like for collaboration and for inspiration, creativity, all the things you need to do storytelling well, you have to be with other people. And while Zoom has been great on so many levels, I think it is harder to kind of collaborate or brainstorm with colleagues unless you're paying for the opportunity I've been taking some really great classes and um, some of them are based in New York which I also recommend because I feel like with writing you know to me I do best when I'm constantly learning but also when I'm getting feedback and that's hard to do when we're all at home and not around others.
0: I took your interview class, San Francisco State. And, you know, you taught us like the principles and the theories about interviewing and who are some of the favorite people you've interviewed during your career as a journalist?
1: You know, my forte or what I did well um, in the newsroom is I did breaking stories a lot. So I was the one sent to wildfires, went down to the courtrooms a lot. I remember, you know, shadowing uh, this wonderful, great AP correspondent reporter named Linda Deutsch. She is amazing. But, you know, during the O.J. Simpson case, I remember being right behind Rodney King, the late Rodney King, as he said in a packed press conference outside, he said to uh, everyone, but these words became kind of legendary, which is he said, can't we all get along? If you ever look for YouTube and look for that video, you'll see a woman, really large glasses, larger than the ones I have on, standing there, taking her notes seriously. Having said that, I remember doing an interview with someone, the late Art link letter down when I was in Hollywood in LA. It was one of my first long interviews with a celebrity type person, and I recorded it. And I listened to the recording and that's when I learned how often I interrupted others. And I ended up not getting any decent quote. So that was a lesson for me. Over the years, when I do have to interview people, I really do try to give them a lot of time to answer, even if it's kind of that uncomfortable pause. I'm just finishing this magazine story that I'm doing. What I found really difficult in those interviews with people in the healthcare business, they didn't really want to open up. And so it was kind of like, how do I get them to share their emotion, which I think is key, so that the quotes or the sound bites can be the most powerful. And I do remember one time when I was covering um, some award show, Mariah Carey, was being quizzed by a bunch of reporters, and I was just one of them. But I got a chance to ask her um, about her multiracial identity. And I'm sure everyone else in the room was like, what is she asking? But for me, it was important because I'm biracial, and it was important to me. But I get those one-time opportunities. Oftentimes, uh, the kinds of interviews I've done because I'm doing breaking news or stories that turn quickly, I don't have longer interviews with some of the you know kind of profile characters that you would want. But with every interview that I do, I just kind of feel like, how can I get them to open up?
0: Okay. So you talked about you wrote mostly breaking stories. Was there a story that you felt almost uncomfortable writing about?
1: There are numerous stories. Just because I do, I was covering Los Angeles and a lot of stories came out of South Central. There was an actor, Todd Bridges, who was on Different Strokes. And at that time, he was having a lot of problems with the law and perhaps drugs. And I remember going to the house of the man who Todd Bridges had allegedly shot and standing at the doorway um, trying to get part of that story. And I remember the headlines and the front page story running in the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, which no longer exists you know, kind of thinking about here was someone who I had idolized watched different strokes every day, you know, you know, can't get the theme song out of my head. And the little kid, you know, Gary Coleman, you know, what you're talking about, Willis, and to have to do a story like that, it crushes me a little bit, because it's someone you admire someone you think, okay, well, they have money, they have success, how did they end up in this really dark place that deals with drugs and murder, or not murder, because the person survived, but Violence. There were many stories like that because, again, I am in LA. And so you had to have a very thick skin in order to cover um, the kinds of stories I did. And at that time, I did because I was young. I was really hungry. So I wanted to understand, like, okay, why did this shooting happen? You know, how did the fire start? I wanted those questions answered. So it steeled me against all of the violence that you end up seeing. But I don't know how long one could do that, you know, whether some people I know, like Edna Buchanan was this amazing crime reporter. She made a career out of it. She's written, you know, books, and I think some of them were turned into movies. For me, I knew at a certain point, that's not what I wanted to do for decades. So moving from that, and then thinking about what I wanted to do next was really important as I was thinking about my career choices after being at the AP for a couple of years. But yeah, that's the beauty of journalism. Journalism is you get to be part of the history. You're like everyday historian as you're covering these cases, as you're covering the big picture stories, and then people can then dissect them later.
0: So you talk about journalism being a voice, being historian, but then, you know, then you hear about journalists being on the wrong side of history. So I'm kind of skipping ahead, but you know, when you teach your media students about journalism, does it hurt when like they don't absorb the journalism ethics? You know, they just kind of take journalism into their own terms and then you end up seeing them, you know, doing some like weird false reporting just based on their biases? Yeah. The way that I teach journalism
1: at San Francisco State has changed quite a bit. I used to teach classes that were strictly like journalism. Now that I'm in Becca, I teach journalism, but I also teach the larger world of what we might think of as media writing. And in the context of media writing, I think there is a lot more flexibility. There's a lot more, there's not just this one box of how journalism should be done. I also think that younger generations have done a really good job of questioning how things are done and why. I actually appreciate it when students challenge conventional ways of thinking and and ways of producing news. Where I think the problem can occur is if a student makes things up. That's the thing about journalism. I actually love creative writing on my own. I love doing more of memoir type writing or um, script writing. That's kind of what I'm learning more about. All of those allow your imagination to take over, to take charge. You can create characters. You can imagine what the story might you know could have been and documentaries oftentimes will be based on a true story or even great movies but then they will kind of stylize it to what the writer and the production team imagines the story is journalism to me is one of those places that if you choose to do journalism you have to stick with what you're given that means if the quote's not great that's what you have that means if the person didn't really open up that's what you have and you're limited by that. So what I would say is when a person goes over that line and they make up things or they put words into the mouth of someone who didn't say it, that's no longer journalism. And so a lot of times it's as a writer, you know, and this can happen to a young person, right, which is what type of writing do you really love to do? Do you love to stick to just the facts and try to get other people to give you those facts and then cobble them together to make a a story that informs the public, that's journalism. But if you're inspired by the people around you, and then you can imagine um, something even greater or something that touches upon a universal truth, but does it through imagination and creativity, I would call you a creative storyteller. Oftentimes in traditional writing, you leave out your own opinions And yet there's place for that in our world because people love commentators, they love opinion makers. We look at late night show hosts as, you know, not only people giving us jokes, but also giving us information. So the definition of what a storyteller or journalist is has changed, not just for the people practicing it or teaching it, more importantly, it's changed for the people receiving that information they view things in a different context we have to be aware of that as well i don't think it's bad or good i think it's just dictated by the the reality of how technology has impacted our lives how technology has changed the way we communicate and how younger audiences and newer audiences want to hear stories even you know informational stories in
0: different ways now i'm gonna quote your linkedin bio aiming to inspire the next generation of storytellers. So what does make a good storyteller? What makes them very authentic? What would make a young storyteller stand out today is
1: their own personality. Like, I feel like there's so many people doing the same exact thing that now it's about how do you distinguish yourself? What energy do you bring? What vibe are you setting? And how is that different from the hundreds of other storytellers out there? And because you think about it, like all the podcasts that are available now, you think about all the YouTube shows and snippets, you can get so much from even just following Instagram accounts. So I think what the audience is looking for, depending on age and demographics is they're looking for someone who they can connect with. So it's almost like there were like three shows that had, you know, a late night show, like theme and you'd pick one nowadays there are hundreds of programs that you can pick from and I think what's happening is a lot of people are just choosing to follow or go with someone who they connect with and it could be as simple as I like her sense of humor it's dry that's the way I like to joke about things or it could be she makes me laugh or it could be um, she really gets to the point quickly and I really like that. It's almost like the different thing now is you have to think of yourself as a brand or as a personality, even from a very young age. It's about doing whatever you do well, but also standing out.
0: That is very true. Being a brand, when I went to study at San Francisco State, you know, under Becca. I wanted to be a DJ personality and you definitely have to have a personality and you have to stand out amongst others because even DJs, they are considered storytellers. I listen to traditional radio more than I do listen to like, I don't know, your Spotify. But when I listen to traditional radio... You know, I hear almost the same exact personalities. Okay, I'll listen to this alternative station and every female host has like a similar personality. And it's like, I want to hear something different than, oh, I changed this one station, same personality. I changed a different station. That's another same personality. It's a different person, but they have the same personality.
1: I think that's weird. That's just my own personal opinion. But I think that's why so many more people are leaving traditional formats. They're not listening to a radio program. Uh, They're not coming to the five o'clock news hour. They're not doing the things that 10 years ago what most of us did because they want something different. And to me, when you see the audience moving away from what is the norm, that should be the indication of what's to come in the future. What's to come in the future is that more people want to hear authenticity. They want to hear someone say, this is how I talk, this is who I am. I'm going to bring you this kind of information. Join me if you want, and we'll go from there. And their audiences are growing. Their followers are growing. And they're educating, you know, the mainstream. Like, hey, by the way, you didn't think this would work, but it's actually working well. And then, of course, what happens is that sometimes when they become super popular, then they become part of the mainstream, and then they kind of lose that little pizzazz. And I'm generalizing, but look at Stephen Colbert, the show that he had before He became part of, you know, network to me, it's like night and day Bill Maher, you know, I just think of some of the people who kind of made it, but then they went to a more mainstream company or whatever. And I'm sure it paid more, but at the same time, I I wonder if they
0: lost a little bit of themselves that's an interesting perspective. Now you've kind of been teasing this, so I want to get straight to it. So when I was sending you emails, I see that your email signature says you are the author of the social media journalist handbook. What is this handbook? Can you tell us a little bit more? Thanks.
1: Yeah. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book that just basically is kind of a primer. It would help, you know, if you're learning about social media as it applies to journalism, And I worked with Taylor and Rutledge, uh, the publishing company. And it's essentially a great book if you are taking a class and you want to know how to leverage social media. Basically, you're still a, a journalist or you're still trying to do journalistic work. But how do you use social media without going crazy? You know, and that's a lot of times. Uh, when I was working with journalists, they would often say, it's just too much. How do I handle all these different accounts? How do I put out all this information? My true belief is that you don't have to do it all. You just have to choose a platform or two that works for you, that you find is where your audience lives. Connect you know, with them through great content, which could mean inspirational quotes, or if it's providing your take. On stories that happen, kind of like how late night show hosts, right, basically are giving us their take on a news story. And that's the other thing I think is important that sometimes journalists will say, Oh, here's a story, it's important, just read it. But in social media, you have to kind of convince your audience, Well, here's what I think it's important, and give them a little bit. So it's essentially the book is really showing you how to make those slight changes so that you can either get the stories that you're doing out in the world or you can help promote those stories that you think are important but do it in a way where you remember that you are very much the reason why someone's following you like they're not just following you because you put out great stories they're following
0: you because of what you say about those stories because you know you've written this handbook do you think that social media journalists have benefited social media or do you think you know it may ruin their credibility because now it seems like anyone could be a journalist. I truly believe, I mean, I think social media
1: revolutionized a lot of things, especially as it started out, and we look at cases around the world where we see that that social media was the make or break thing in terms of letting the world know about a story, about something that was going on, often something bad. So I have no qualms about and no concern about everyone if they want to about George Floyd think about the person and the persons who recorded that video. They were not paid to record. They were not told they needed to do this as part of their jobs. They were standing there and they saw something wrong, something horrible happening, and they did not put those cameras down. And because of them, we now have change, you know, things happen. It's all related to that. I would never discourage anyone from picking up a camera or a recorder or just starting to write and tell that story. I think that the danger is because social media, you know, so many rumors and so much gossip is out there is how do we make sure that we're not promoting rumors and gossip? I think that's the thing we have to guard against. It's almost like we have to really argue for more media literacy It's just that social media has made it so much easier for mistakes to spread like wildfires and become what we consider truth, And that's the danger because they're not truthful. They're not accurate. And they could create fear. They could stoke violence.
0: Talking about fear and violence. And, you know, let me know if you're up to sharing this. But I know that when I took your class, you shared that you're uh, Japanese descent. And so you being Asian, how do you feel as a journalist and as a person? And you're hearing the news about violence against Asians. Thank you for asking. It's
1: frightening, you know, to be to walk around and to think that somebody would want to attack me or hurt me because of what I am. And it's scary, I'm, I mean, I, you know, that's where we are. I can't believe we're at this place where we have to be more worried about who we are, where we are. I'm constantly looking around, <laughs> making eye contact because you see some of the brutality that's gone on. People are being blindsided. They're being attacked when they're not even looking and they're not even doing anything. Talking about it from a journalistic perspective, Well, let me just talk about it from a media perspective. One thing that is so encouraging is that social media has made it so much easier for us to share the message of stop hate. You know, here's what's happening. Here's an event that you can do, you know, check out. And that's what I've been doing. And I think, and I've been doing that just through social media. So I no longer have to rely on, you know, the couple of news operations in town to report the story. So even if they're not talking about it every day, my community... And people I know are. So that is a good thing because now it's no longer that we're all in vacuums because we know what's going on and we can try to take action. Journalistically, I would say I would like to see more coverage from mainstream news outlets, but not just coverage on when someone gets attacked. I would like to see coverage on why is this happening? What are the numbers? I would like to see interviews done with political leaders on what they are doing to address this type of uh, hatred and this type of crime. You know, I would love to see the stories that are not so dramatic, but tell our public what's really going on.
0: Not only have you taught at San Francisco State, but you're also a guest lecturer at UC Berkeley. So how did you get involved with that? So I
1: have to thank Gary Moskowitz. He lectures also at SF State. And he uh, actually hit me up a few years ago, and I met David Thigpen over at UC Berkeley School of Journalism. And uh, I got this opportunity to start being a lecturer um, with undergraduates in the summer program. So these are students from all over the campus who don't know much about journalism or who haven't taken any formal classes. They're studying sciences and you know, other things. And yet we come together for six weeks um, during the summer. I'm about to start another class in late May. But the idea is we come together and we're talking about journalism, just the way you and I are talking about it. Some are interested in getting into it, but most are not. Most are just kind of like they want to know a little bit more about what's going on. We do some fun writing. We'll get to write profiles. We'll get to write a feature. It is basically a writing first class. That's kind of how the opportunity came along. More recently in the fall, I got to teach graduate students in the School of Journalism. And what I have loved about the most recent experiences, the last few years especially, is that we are dealing with such a crazy time right now. And journalism is about being in the crazy time and what do we do about it and how do we handle it. So instead of being theoretical, you know, like talking about things that happened five years ago, you are talking about, in the classroom, we are talking about things as they happen. What's happening with the COVID restrictions? Today, for example, uh, I, I saw a story about the CDC lifting the mask requirements for everyone who's vaccinated in small groups, outdoors, all of that stuff. And that's just ripe material. That's the kind of information that like on a daily basis, you're like, okay, how do we, do we do a follow-up on this story? Should we get an interview with people on what they think? I mean, there's so much going on in the world right now that you don't have to think theoretically about journalism and what it means. And that's exciting. We are dealing with this right now. You know, restrictions go up, they go down. You know, people talk about the fall coming. uh, There might be another spike, you know, as journalists. Okay, what do we do about that? How do we prepare for that? So there's just so much going on that it's an exciting time to be a journalist.
0: Oh, for sure. Like if 2020 didn't prove that. (laughs) And I want to go back into LinkedIn because you did work for LinkedIn for a journalist who wants to, like, let's see, get their attention. Notice what should they have on their LinkedIn profile?
1: So I think if you want to get a job through the LinkedIn platform, I think it's important to number one to make sure that you have your skills add up to 99 skills, I believe. But the idea is that you want to put in keywords or you want to have things that quickly signal to a recruiter that you might have the right set of skills. And they're gonna do this through a search because you know, essentially everything you put on your profile, it's like going into an algorithm. It's like you're creating that secret sauce. So my advice there would be, if you haven't taken the time to fill out a headline, which is that title, and you only say you're a student or you only say you're a recent grad, that to me is a missed opportunity. You need keywords that talk about your aspirations, not just who you are right now, but who you want to be, because those keywords signal, it says, oh, this person is a storyteller. This person is a producer, a documentary maker in the summary, which is another place where you can kind of tell your story in a way that just filling the blanks can't. In terms of job experience I think that most companies are looking for a certain, you know, they'll ask for someone with three to five years experience. And the key is, is that you want to make sure that you have jobs that run at least three to five years. So they're not just going to take your word at the experience you have. They're actually going to count. The algorithm kind of counts like, oh, she worked here from 2011 to 2013. And then she worked from here from 2013 to 2016. They add up those years. And then that's how, you know, let's say a recruiter is looking for someone with six plus years of experience. So really taking the time to fill out every place on your profile that you can. And then also, you know, I can't stress that this is a simple one, but just having a headshot where they can see you, usually a very professional, so shoulder level of So very different from like what you might be doing on Facebook or Instagram, where you can have a lot more, a little more fun. But I have to say the LinkedIn platform does work in terms of if you do take that time to fill it out, people do reach out to you and they'll get in touch with you, not just for job opportunities, but for speaking engagements or, you know, other kinds of work. I've actually had people reach out so that they can get a referral. So they'll say, Hey, Yumi, I see that you're connected to this producer in Florida, Can you give me an intro? In most cases, if I know you, I will. It's just all very seamless. And to me, life is so crazy, so hectic that if you can make it easier for a potential employer to have a one stop shop quickly who you are, what your education was, what skills you believe you have. And of course, if you can get those skills endorsed, I would definitely recommend it. So instead of just having a skill listed down like copy editing, have people endorse you for that skill, ask them, you know, ask them to write a letter of recommendation that will show up on your LinkedIn profile.
0: Those are just some of the tips I would give. Wow, these are awesome tips. I'm gonna have to really brush up my LinkedIn profile. (laughs) (laughs) When you were a media student, what was an advice that a professor told you that you still live by today? And maybe that you share to your students as well? Okay. So I have several. One advice that
1: I got from the professor was, Yumi, if you can go to LA, you should go. And I remember being here in Solano. My mom was there. I really didn't want to leave home per se. I didn't grow up there, but that's where I lived then. But I remember thinking, okay, it's true. If you want to be in television or if you want to be, let's say you want to be in theater, New York, San Francisco, right? There's certain places that I think it's important that you go even if you're not working at the studio that you want to be at you're in the location where the studio is so now it just makes it easier for you to either go to auditions take those extra classes in acting or whatever work jobs that put you in that world i would definitely recommend that cuz i think going to la for me was life changing you know the other thing i would say a bit of advice i got when i was down in la is writing like you know looks, the way that we sound, all of that, that's great. But at the end of the day, if you can write well, your looks won't matter. I would say though, let me add a third bit of advice. And I would say this comes from me going through everything that I've gone through. Anyone has the opportunity to do now is to pursue their dream without worrying about what happens next. And what I mean by that is, okay, let's say you want to do a podcast and maybe no one's watching or listening to that podcast right now. Don't give up. Keep doing the podcast, but do something more. Think about social media and how you might break up that longer podcast to sound bites that you could share on Instagram. It's refining your message without giving up your dream. You are you. You become the person who has this very special gift to share with the world, you don't become someone else. And that, I think, is something that I would encourage people to do. In terms of money, right, people got to get paid. And this is a struggle for myself as well. One of the reasons I do lecturing jobs, one of the reasons I will work at places like LinkedIn is the career path I've chosen doesn't pay it a whole lot. I know that, I knew that. So it means the side hustle is incredibly important. That's what we have to do. If we truly believe in what we do and we really enjoy it, it may mean that we have to work side jobs. And until we get to a place where we don't need the side jobs, you know, we hustle because at the end of the day, even though I have different side jobs and stuff, I really enjoy every single thing because it all is part of me Trying to be a storyteller, you know, the magazine piece that I'm finishing, the teaching job that has to do with journalism, the writing work that I'm doing, the classes that I take. All of it really leads to this place where I feel the most myself, which is something that had I gone into business or law or engineering, all those are amazing and they probably pay way more. I just don't think it would have been me. The tip I would give to anyone who's starting out, who's ambitious, who's hungry, just keep doing what you're doing. Know the breakthrough will come in some form that you may least expect it. You may have to do side hustles, but that's what we do because then at least you're pursuing your true dream.
0: I think we both are hustlers. So and that's what I admire about you too. Well, Yumi, thank you so much for your time. I will let you go. Thanks for your interest. And thanks for having me on the show. Who else is going to go on their laptop and update their LinkedIn profile after hearing that advice from Yumi. Give a huge applause to my professor Yumi Wilson for coming on the show and applause to you for sticking around and listening to the whole entire thing. I will be back with another interview. Now it could be with another professor. It could be someone from radio. It could be someone who works for a record label. So just keep your eye out on KCSS with your host Chanel and see what I upload I just know that it's gonna be again a woman in media focus so that is my specialty show until I go back to interviewing bands and artists because I know that you miss that, so do I too. Now, if you KCSS listeners were curious as to what instrumental track you're hearing underneath, well, that is Mariah Carey's Fantasy, which she samples from the Tom, Tom Club and their song Genius of Love, just throwing in a fun musical fact for you out there. So again, huge thanks to everyone. Until next time, hasta la vista.